that, baby? Here we go, April the 28th, uh, 2013, lecture discussion number 108 on the Book of Romans. Um, I just announced for the Internet people, this is the, uh, the worst April since 1975 in Alaska. That's at least what I read the other day, and I believe it. I've been here for all the Aprils that anyone wants to know about. And next Sunday is uh, Cinco de Sivo, uh, which is a worldwide celebration of my birthday on May the 5th. So I want to make sure you were all corrupted with that. Okay. You may have noticed the last few Sundays that I have been uh, harping, pounding, whatever you want to call it, on a couple of themes, trying to make sure that you've got them in, and maybe you haven't noticed. Uh, I, I try to be a little subtle. Some might say clever. It's not really that clever. But uh, it concerns me every now and then when I ask you questions whether or not I'm really getting it all through. So I'm going to put it on the board. It's a visual aid day. Um, I'm going to try to blast it in and make sure everyone knows what these issues are, kind of confront it face-to-face, so to speak, gather everybody up on the, the tour bus and uh, make sure that we have it. Oh, by the way, as an aside, I keep getting people on the Internet world. I, I say hello to them again. They count. That's the one thing about being on the Internet as much as we are. Uh, there are people who, uh, who write me very funny things. Benjamin from Chicago is, is ridiculously funny, and, and Sharon and a bunch of you guys are remarkable. You should have your own shows. But, um, but anyway, uh, they count my okays and my anyways and my so's. So, so I just did it. I just did so. They count them, and they tell me how many of them I do trying to rattle me, so I'll think about it. Well, I've thought about it, and I'm responding today. I have a new word. Any case, so okay. So, any case, so okay, there are effectively three categories, uh, which can be divided into subjects, or smaller related categories. I'm going to put them on the, on the board. It is, uh, as I said, Visual Aid Sunday. I call them the What Really Happened. So, uh, the whole title is, What Really Happened? And I've been doing this lecture for a long time. Uh, I, when I came upon it, I, I can't even remember when I realized that I did not know things that I thought I knew. I was probably in my 20s over in Hawaii, and I began to uh, uh, develop uh, this lecture I have over the years, way back then. Uh, what really happened at the curse would be the first category. And by that I mean what happened physically to Adam and Eve, or the woman really, physically, Adam and the woman. And the element here that you have to keep, I can't go too far, is this poison issue. Now, very important. They took poison and it affected them physically. What happened physically to the animals, because the animals began to, they went from very good to attack and defense structures, for one, and fear, so physically to animals. What happened to them? How did it happen? Um, let me write fear and attack and defense structures. How, how can an attack and defense structure be compatible with the words very good, I guess is what I'm saying there. What really happened now at this point to Satan? Because as you know, one of the keys um, to the curse one of the, is the two trees. Adam goes to the first tree after three days and three nights of reflection on the fact that his wife has come back to him poisoned and dying. He, does, he goes to the first tree and eats of the same poison, if you will, or she brings the poison to him would be a better way to, to um, be more accurate. So she returns with the poison and he meditates on it, I believe, three days, three nights. But one thing he does not do is go to the second tree because if he does, he is in death forever. It is, and, and God prevents him from going back, actually says, I'm going to guard that second tree from you. It is the in sin forever tree or live forever in sin tree after it is no longer the tree of life because the poison has been injected or accepted. But the question becomes, did Satan have the same two-part event? And so what I ask here is, is the killing, if you will, the enticing of Adam and the woman, the second tree, 
for Satan. Does that make sense? If it doesn't, see me later. I hopefully I'll explain it better. And then what happened? What, in other words, what really happened to Satan? Is this his second tree? Because he's cursed here. He's forever cursed. That seems like a second tree event to me. So the first event for Satan was Ezekiel 28.16, the abundance of your traffic, where he went angel by angel, every single one of them, where he lied to them and caused this great turmoil in the heavenly estate. And then he comes and he attacks Adam and the woman. Adam, he does not deceive. The woman, he is able to deceive, get her to take the poison. That becomes a very important point, as you know, um, all throughout the Bible, understanding the fact that uh, she willingly had the ability to do that. That uh, makes you think about yourselves as well. Okay? So is this Satan's second tree, if you will? Uh, Because afterwards he is cursed forever. And then what happened to the natural laws? What really happened to the natural laws? It seems obvious to me that um, the laws that are in place today, uh, entropy, the instability, uh, electricity, for example, is the, uh, is, if, if we don't know for sure exactly. When I was in school back in the 70s, they said that the, it was the uh, removal of an electron in the outermost valence bond of an atom uh, that made it a conductor. Uh, And magnetism would do that. Heat would do it. You could remove it with pressure or heat or magnetism. Chemically, that's what a battery is as well. You can get the removal of electrons and get them going um, in a certain direction. Uh, We still disagree over whether it's positive to negative or negative to positive. Uh, It's fascinating. I worked for the railroad where everything was a uh, positive ground. So uh, it's fascinating to see the difference. Or locomotives are, I'm sorry, automobiles are negative ground. So it's gone back and forth over the last hundred years. And and Nikolai Tesla, I think, got it right. But anyway, enough of that. Clearly, the natural laws, the instability that is in nuclear uh, events, the instability that is all over us, uh, demonstrates that the natural law has changed. And of course, then, oops, number five, then I have insects to deal with and viruses, right? Um, insects, bacteria that has changed um, invertebrates. Forgot the R. Invertebrates and then, uh, uh, you know, uh, poisonous plants, if you will, uh, thorns and thistles and all of that. So that, that, that is the what really happened at the curse. Did these things Obviously, Adam and the woman changed physically. Animals changed physically. Uh, fear came in. Did attack and defense structures also come in? Was this Satan's second tree? What happened to the natural laws? I've got second. Uh, I've got thermodynamics now, and I've got this this uh, acceleration towards chaos. That is not stability. Certainly, is not very good. And then I have insects. Anybody that thinks a mosquito is a great idea. Uh. Can't define that as very good, I don't think. I have poisonous plants, I have thorns, thistles, sweat, soil implications, all of that, okay? So what really happened there? i got to somehow get all of this in here, my next two categories on this part of the board. And then the other one, that's what really happened at the curse. And now what really happened at the flood? Uh, I have the, the sons of God... And the, uh, which are the angels, if you will, and the, that's the cosmological view. That's the one that I have. I think it's the only one that's defensible. I know the other views. The only one that, that seems to be able to uh, stand up to scrutiny is the cosmological position that says the sons of God in Genesis 6 uh, are, in fact, the angels. I have the sons of God, the daughters of men, and the Nephilim. What really is going on there? Uh, I have the, the animals who survived. I have the, the people who survived, the eight, right? On the ark. I, uh, I have the changes, the receding waters and the geological changes, the, um, uh, all the upheaval that occurs on the earth. The, the receding of the water and what that did geologically, topographically, uh, geographically. How fast did it happen? 
as the waters receded, uh, we ended up with what we have today, if, the, if we interpret it correctly. Uh, it happened very quickly. Continental drift, very quick, rapid event. So what really happened at the flood? And then the last one, um, this would be a geographical. And by the way, it, it's going to happen again, isn't it? We've had geographic upheaval in Genesis with the, with the land coming out of the water, the formless and void. I got geographic up, upheaval again, or uh, a geological upheaval again at the flood of Noah. And then at the, in Revelation, during the millennial rule, I have the millennial river and I have the millennial mountain. So I, God has geographical, uh, geological changes that occur at least three times that are extraordinary. But the last one with regard to what really happened at the flood is the tent of Noah. What really happened in that tent? Because I can make the case, just as I have poison over here, I had poison there. And you've begun to hear me and see me begin to relate Adam to Noah. What really happened in that tent? And then my last, what really happened... Uh, is the crucifixion. Okay? Uh, the seven sayings of Christ from the cross. What really what did he mean with those say, seven sayings at the time that he did it? I had the torn veil, right? I had the darkness that happened. I had the emptied tombs. These people came out of the tombs, went into Jerusalem, and testified. Who were they? What really happened at the crucifixion? I had the procession. What I mean by the procession is this, this, this group of people. I had a, a multitude of Jews. I had the Romans, the executioners, if you will. They're contingent there. I had Christ himself. And we are moving. I have the two thieves, the other guys. And we're moving uh, uh, towards the place where the Romans thought that they were going to crucify him. Of course, it never got to where the Romans thought, because Christ made them go up a mountain, essentially a hill. So that procession, and in the middle of that procession, I had uh, the Cyrenian Simon, who came, who the Romans said, wow, we've got to get this guy to carry the cross beam, because it's not going well the way Christ is carrying it. Is it because Christ couldn't carry it? No, it's because Christ was making a, a baton out of it. That is the only defendable view in my, in my estimation. So I have that processional. And then, while he is on the cross, they try to give him poison. So it's important to note that you, you have poisoned in all three events. And then I have the burial and the resurrection. And then I have the person that is Judas. So few people have any idea about Judas. And then I have the virgin birth. That has everything to do with the... Because I can't get the virgin birth away from the resurrection, you see. The two are codependent, interdependent, as you've heard me say. And then I have what is called the physical death of God. Notice how I said physical death. How is it that God can suffer physical death? It's impossible. But yet it happened. Okay. And hopefully you've noticed that I've been beating this in the last few weeks. That's my goal, is to just keep pounding and pounding and pounding what I call the what really happened here. Or what the, the what really happened. Happened. And you've noticed that I've been doing it lately at least, but actually I've done it my entire career. I constantly ask, what really, I mean really, happened? What truly happened? And the implications of those, that question's insulting to people, isn't it? It's, it is, they tell me. They tell me uh, it's obvious that I'm insulting them. I agree. I'm proposing at the least that most people, certainly most Christians, have no idea what really happened 
at the curse of the Garden of Eden, at the flood of Noah, and the crucifixion of Christ. They have no idea. They have not even the slightest idea of what genuinely and materially occurred there in all three of those. And it goes further. Not only do they have no idea, they don't know they don't, have, they don't know. They don't know they have no idea. They're positive they've got it. It is almost exactly like a teenage boy. It's so frustrating to me. They don't know that they don't know, and they're so confident. Now, I don't really see it anywhere else in society except in these events. I don't run into people that are so confident and they're so wrong anywhere else but here. Some would say politically, um, and that may be the only thing that comes close. Uh, but the people that, that think they know about these three things are so sure they've got it right. If I get one thing said to me from the Internet, it's this. I had no idea. Over and over and over again, I had no idea. I've gone to church my whole life. I had no idea. So I'm going to throw in some math here. I'm willing to wager that 95% of all Christians don't know what happened at the Genesis Garden, at the worldwide flood, and at the crucifixion. 95%. In fact, it's probably higher than that. 95 likely low. Probably 99%. In addition, what is thought to be true at Genesis 3, Genesis 6, 7, 8, and 9, which is uh, the Noadic flood element or area, and the crucifixion, is not only incorrect, it's usually the exact opposite. That's surely the case with all the movies we have to watch every Ishtar Christmas. They're exactly oppositely wrong. They couldn't get more wrong. And once again, uh, that's mighty bold talk, one-eyed fat man. I got that. People tell me that too. But let's evaluate just the fear issue. Bill brought it up. We don't inspire. He didn't know what I was going to do today. But let's just take this one element, the fear issue. Ask some quick questions. What is fear? Define it. When did fear happen? Who did it happen to first? Who was the first to fear, if you prefer it that way? Why did the ones that feared first, why did they fear? And then uh, specifically, what did they fear? What caused the fear? What causes fear generally? In other words, what caused the first specific fear? And then what causes general fear? Do you fear? We all fear. Why? Now, everyone should know that the question of fear is immediately back here, right? It's the first what really happened. The element of fear is prominent there. Genesis 3, 10 through 11. I'll read it. I heard your voice in the garden and I was afraid. That's Adam responding to God. God asked him a question. God knew where he was, but he asked him a question. God knew the answer to the question. He still asked him the question. Asked him the question because he's doing what? Exactly what we do. He's trying to find out if we know the answers. He knows the answers. The questions are not for his sake. Where are you? Adam responds, I heard your voice in the garden and I was afraid. Obvious question. What's he afraid of? And he tells you, I was afraid because I was naked. I heard your voice in the garden. I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. And God said, who told you you were naked? Now, there's the beginning of our answer to our fear question because it's an equation and you have to solve the equation. You have God's voice, part of the equation. You have naked and you have, who told you? If 
God knew the answer to that too. We covered that a few weeks ago. Who is the one that told Adam that he, because God got it right, didn't he? Somebody told Adam that he was naked. I was afraid because I was naked. Who told you that you were naked? I heard your voice. I was afraid I was naked. Who told you? So that's the equation that solves fear, by the way. And we need to figure out what God's voice, nakedness, and who told you has to do with fear. But for today, just let's just keep it small, and I'll get to it as the weeks go by. Ask this question. How many Christians today believe that Jesus Christ, how many Christians today, if I walked around the world, okay, let's just take Spinard, but if I walked around Anchorage and asked people, are you a Christian? Do you go to church regularly? Did you grow up in the church? And I got a yes answer, and the next question I asked to them, it was, Jesus Christ afraid to be crucified. How many would answer yes? All of them. 99%. Every 99.9%. That means that no one knows what really happened at the crucifixion. Just in case you doubted my math. They have no idea. In fact, what they think is exactly the opposite of what happened at the crucifixion. I'll prove it to you. That just tells you, you can do this yourselves. You don't need me. Go to Safeway and stand in line and ask people, what uh, was Jesus Christ afraid to be crucified? You, could find, you can't find anyone that will tell you no. You can't. I defy you. Spend all week. The overwhelming overwhelming teaching about the crucifixion is the nonsense, now you know my opinion, is the nonsense that Jesus Christ was afraid to die. That he was afraid of the entire crucifixion process and he wanted to get out of it. That is the overwhelming teaching. Never is the rebuttal to that nonsense ever mentioned. I challenge you to find it. You will not find it. Every now and then, some strange, one-eyed, fat guy somewhere, one little tiny church that nobody knows about, will run his mouth off and say, it's nonsense to think that way. It cannot be the truth. It cannot be, and it is not the truth. But most won't go against the 99.9%. Why not? Truth is on your side. Oh, I think it's worse than that. Yes, sir. You can. That's correct. And for those of you out in the audience in the in the ether, uh, supper, Dave said it's it's an economic decision. You don't go against ninety nine point nine percent of the vote if you want to stay in office. You want to make get your retirement pay. So again, let's back up some. Define fear. If 99.9% of all Christians, except for the people here in this city, believe that Christ was afraid of his own plan of crucifixion, he planned it. It's his plan. He's the one that designed it. He has total authority and control over it. He's doing it exactly as he has decided to do it. But you, 99.999% say that he's afraid of it. He's afraid of death. Let me ask the question then. I'll cede the argument for the basis of the argument. What is required to fear death? To put it, it's always helpful, by the way, when you get a question like that, to put it in its inverse form. Let's try that. Let me ask it this way. What cannot be present if the fear of death is present? In other words, if you come up to me and say, I fear my physical death, I'm going to say, I now know something about you. I know something about me. Do I fear my physical death? Yes, I'm going to be a cry baby, unless I'm heavily medicated. What is required? What cannot be present if the fear of death is present? Or let's put it another way: What is the absolute opposite of fear? And by the way, fear is a mental property. Keep that in mind in this discussion. Anyway, okay, so, omniscience, I will help you if you're keeping 
you if you're doing the test at home or here. Omniscience. Omniscience is the absolute opposite of fear. Yes, sir. That's right. Perfect love. By the way, God is love. Love never fails. God is love. God never fails. Your love fails all the time. No offense. So does mine. Keep that in mind. Omniscience, let me continue, is the absolute and perfect love and omniscience you're going to find end up being the same. Omniscience is the absolute opposite of fear. Omniscience negates fear. What is omniscience? It's all-knowing. If I have all-knowing capability, I know all things. That's how we end the book of John. You know all things. Peter finally figures out that Christ is omniscient God. You know all things. Finally. Answers the question wrong twice. Finally gets it right on the third time Christ asks them. That's where you see love and the coupling of omniscience together. Omniscience negates fear. If I'm all-knowing, I have no fear. And fear negates omniscience. To be correct, omniscience, more correct, omniscience and fear cannot coexist. So if you come to me and say you have fear, I have learned that you have no omniscience. Fear is not knowing. The fear of the unknown, right? Common uh, adage. Fear is proof that the one who fears is not omniscient. And therefore, if he's not omniscient, then what else is he not? He's not omnipresent, and he's not not omnipotent, as all three of those are required for any of them to be. I cannot be any of those unless all three of them are there. And all three of those require something else. What does omniscience, omnipresence, and omnipotence require besides each other? Infinity. I cannot be all-knowing, I cannot be everywhere, and I cannot be all-powerful unless I am infinite. So fear negates infinity by the math. Any and all positions that have placed fear in Christ declare him to be finite. Because they strip away his omniscience and his omnipresence and his omnipotence. He's got fear. Fear cannot coexist with those three. So he cannot be infinite. Therefore, he is finite. You can make him really big, but he's still finite. And if he is finite, then none are safe. We'll get to that in a minute. To declare Christ finite is blasphemy and heresy. Now, whenever I get on this subject, I get this letter that I get all the time now. It really comes up. What about the fear of pain? It's become almost the most common response to the incompatibility of omniscience and fear that I get now. And again, pain is a mental property. Or if you wish, I'll go ahead and concede or cede that it is a physical property for the sake of today's argument. In either case, just ask this about pain. Is fear of pain consistent with omnipotence? Doesn't all-powerful negate fear of pain? How can I have fear of pain if I'm all-powerful? How can I have pain at all if I'm all-powerful? All-powerful cannot be all-powerful if fear of pain exists. As soon as I say, hey, I'm all-powerful, except I'm afraid of pain. (laughs) Doesn't it? occur to you that you must not be all-powerful. Of course, all-powerful negates fear of pain. So if you have Christ in a position where he's afraid of his own crucifixion and he's afraid of the pain of the crucifixion, then you have declared him to be not omniscient, not omnipresent, not all-powerful, omnipotent, and not infinite, which means he's not God. Absolutely correct. And if he is not God, whole lot of heap of problems. 
Fear of pain is evidence that one is not omnipotent and therefore not outside of time, not omnipresent, not omniscient, not, not infinite, same path, right? Fear of pain is by its very de- definition implying that pain has power. And pain can't have power because someone has to be all-powerful. All, by the way, means what? In that sentence, if you're all-powerful, then you're what? You're all-powerful, which means... You got what? All the power. Pain's got no power over you. It's just basic logic. Amanda is coming. An hour late. I want to do something, but I won't, other than to tell you. If it were Daylight Savings Day today, uh, we would do something. It's not. She has a little baby. We'll give her a break. Even though she's she's a relative and they're at a higher standard. Okay, where was I? I just see her coming. She's I, I had a really good joke, but she's not coming in fast enough for me to think. Hi, Amanda. Welcome to the Internet. What did you bring to eat? Soup. Good. <laughs> where was I? I'm a trained professional. How can the all-powerful one fear? He can't. It's impossible. Fear of pain, by its very definition, implies that the pain has power. Omnipotence, by its very definition, contradicts that anything has power except the all-powerful one. If Jesus Christ was in fear of anything, then he is not God. Period. End of story. If you declare him to be not God, all salvation is ruined. There is no salvation. And he is always God, never not God, for that extreme, obvious reason. Our salvation is dependent on Christ's Godhood and his perfect humanity, which is proved by his resurrecting himself, which is proved by, which then proves his virgin birth, which proves the literal Adam and Eve and Satan, which proves the angelic host, etc., etc. The point is, and yes, there's a point. Generally speaking, everything most of the contemporary church teaches and believes about the crucifixion, and for that matter, the entire earthly ministry of Christ from infancy to his ascension, is wholly contrary and absolutely in opposition to his godhood. Everything the church teaches today, the modern contemporary church teaches about the crucifixion, is in opposition to the fundamental doctrine of the Godhood of Christ. And they don't know it. I'll go so far as to submit that, that it is fast approaching total corruption, what they teach about the crucifixion of Christ, to which I refer you to Revelation 3.16 and Revelation 3.20, where Christ says, You make me sick to the church that is right before the second coming. You make me sick. He says, I'm outside and I'm knocking on the door because I am not inside the church at the end of the age. If we are at the end of the age, the church today makes him vomit. What he says, his words, 316 Revelation. And he says clearly, I am outside, open the door. I am not in the church. What does he mean by that? He means that the truth about him, the fact that he is the I am of Exodus 3, that he is creator God in the flesh, that he is the Lord God Almighty, is not in the church at the end of the age. And it is not in the church now. I think you agree with me. 99% of all Christians you talk to have no idea what really happened at the crucifixion nor do they have any idea who Jesus Christ really is. And he says, failing to believe that he is the I Am, that he is the Creator God, that he is the Lord God Almighty, will make him vomit you out. He can't be more clear. So 
So this is the age of the vomit church. And clearly we can see vomit all around it. Any case, uh, anyway, so, I can't barely, I, it's my own joke, I can't even do it. Anyway, so, okay. I want you to question everything you think and say about Jesus Christ. I want you to examine it for disrespect. I want you to search it for any trace, not for my sake, but you, you do it because you know you need to do it for yourselves. Search for any trace that attacks his deity and his perfect humanity. Fear destroys both. You have a position that he is afraid. Focus on the power. By the way, uh, I, it, I was stunned, as you know, when people began to sell bottled tap water for $1.50 a bottle. It stunned me. How stupid do they think we are? Apparently, they have figured out that we are very stupid. And there is nothing more stupid than to go into somebody's house and see a picture of a blue-eyed Englishman with long hair. And they decided that is Christ. Who could sell such a thing? You, who would, who, never mind. How, how dumb do you have to be to buy that? And, and now it's recognizable. You'll a guy will hold up a ham sandwich and say, look, there's a picture of Christ on it. Everybody, they'll go on eBay, they'll get 20 grand for it. Does anybody know what he looked like? No. You make the case on the Shroud of Turin, but in a blue-eyed Englishman there, we can't be sure that the image on the Shroud of Turin is Christ. It is an unusual image. No question about it. It's a three-dimensional image of a crucified man. Of a crucified man. Sorry, I barely got it out. But uh, if there are lots of crucified men. How do I know which one it is? could be the thief that said... You're the rememberer. Could have been somebody crucified the day before. Because he emptied a bunch of tombs, didn't he? So we don't know. We just know it's an incredible image. My point is, is why would you buy a painting of somebody that does not... Uh, every time I see it all the time, somebody said, I have a picture of Jesus Christ right here. Would you like to see it? And I said, oh, that looks like uh, Robert De Niro. You have no idea who that is. Why would you spend good money for it? I, I, I just am amazed. But that's the, that is the church today. Clean-shaven Englishman with blue eyes. It's just garbage. But it sells. Instead of that, focus on the power that Christ possesses and try to see him through that prism. He has all the power. He is the most powerful being in existence. He's not afraid of little tiny cockroaches running around with lanterns. And you've got to be kidding. And when he asks questions, just like he did in, in, the, in the garden, who told you? When it doesn't mean he doesn't know. He's asking to find out if you know that you know. Because he knows if you don't know already. He knows everything and he is all-powerful and he is everywhere. He's never afraid. There's nothing that he doesn't know. He makes sure over and over again that he tells us that. 99.9% of all churches today don't believe it. And I have listened to many sermons and read many books that encourage the listener slash reader to consider what Jesus Christ was thinking during his crucifixion. And I just don't know what to do with them. I throw them as far as I can, which isn't very far anymore, though my arm's getting a lot better. They say this in those books and those lectures. They say to you, place yourself into Jesus' position. So, imagine that you're being crucified for the sins of others. <laughs> you, you, you look up psychobabble in the, in the dictionary, and there they are. That's what it is. It's completely ignoring Isaiah 55, 8 through 9. Let me read this. This is what God says. For my thoughts are not your thoughts. 
nor are your ways my ways, says the Lord. For as far as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts from your thoughts. Isaiah 55, 8, 9 should always be read before anyone studies the crucifixion process or before you watch any of these dumb movies about it. I don't mind you crying at movies. I don't. I can't stop. You cry all you want. But please understand that you're being manipulated. To There's a guy on the radio. He uh, talks all the time about finances. And he says, uh, you're orbiting stupid. And stupid has a very strong gravitational pull. And he's absolutely right about that. Just know that the thoughts of God and the ways of God are not our ways. Don't put yourself into his position. And read Isaiah 55, 8 through 9 before you watch one of those movies. His thoughts are higher thoughts. Our thoughts are therefore what? Well, it's the opposite. We have low thoughts. Somebody, Bill, Bill the cow was telling me, what's the name of that book on positive thinking? What's the actual title? I was trying to remember it. The Antidote? Yeah, The Antidote, the book for people who can't stand positive thinking. I bring up Dennis Prager quite a bit. I'll bring him up again. He's a very smart man. He's not a theologian by any means. He doesn't know that. But, uh, but uh, he, he points out that you are far happier if you have low expectations. Uh, in positive thinking. Really? That's going to get you somewhere. I understand the athletics and all of this stuff. But keep in mind that our thoughts are low thoughts. We think low. That's kind of, that's a very nice way the Bible, Isaiah 55, 8 and 9 is saying, uh, very kindly, that we think badly. We have foolish thoughts. Uh, we have simple thoughts. We're puny little humans, and we love the simple, Proverbs 1, 22. The simpler it is, the more we love it. See what are the highest rated TV shows. The simpler they are, the higher the rating. We love simple. Give us simple. All day long. No one ever goes broke thinking we're simple. We are simple tons. And we love loving the simple. And nowhere is loving the simple and thinking low thoughts more evident than what is believed and taught in the church today about the Genesis curse, the Genesis flood, and the crucifixion of Christ. Okay, let's wrap up this part with some 8th grade biology. Okay. Some observations on Genesis 2 and 3. Notice once again, back to the curse a second, Genesis 3.6 and Genesis 3.9. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, let me repeat it. When the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was pleasant to the eyes. The woman saw the tree, and she decided that it was good for food, and she decided that it was nice to look at. Is she poisoned yet? This substance that she is looking at is pure, radioactive, extremely dangerous poison, absolutely as dangerous as anything. The poison of the tree could be seen by her, and she could just not just observe it, but she could think about it. Let me read it again. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, what did she decide? It was good. So she was not just looking at it. She was deciding things about it, wasn't she? It was pleasant looking. But it was poised. I make the analogy to the contemporary church. You walk into one, man, it looks good. It sounds good. People up on stage, that's the best looking people we can money can buy up there. And they sing good. 
It's pleasant. It's good. But it's poison. What was the warning that God gave to Adam about? See, Eve said, I'm not even supposed to touch it. What did God say to Adam about that poison? Don't eat it. What's eating? Again, I'm going to tell you, the warning was not to eat. And that is a mental process versus physical processes. Seeing and thinking are mental properties. Eating, ingestion of the poison, is a physical process. Ingestion of the poison, why I circled poison in all three places today, was more than an indicator of disobedience. Because it immediately resulted in poisoning. Duh! And the woman was immediately changed by the poison. Boom! Immediate. And Adam was too when he took the poison. So I have a, a change in the physiology of Adam and the woman. The physical immortality that they had was changed into mortality. So they became, they went from physical uh, uh, immortal to physical mortal. Uh, and of equal significance to note is that God did not prevent Adam or the woman from poisoning themselves. The importance of that is so extraordinary. He put a tree there with poison in it, told them don't to eat it, don't eat it, and didn't, then didn't prevent them from eating it. Why did he do that? He only warned them. The implications of that truth are astonishing when we stop thinking simply. What really happened at the curse? Now, the question of Genesis 3.9, once again, where are you? God asking Adam where he now was. God obviously knows. We're about to find out if Adam knows. Adam knows that he has changed from physical immortality to physical mortality. He knows it. Voice, afraid, naked, who told you? Start working the equation. Clearly, in addition, there is a spiritual change as well. But for today's purposes, I want you to focus on the changes that are physical, the physical transformation. What really happened to Adam physically? What did he look like before? What does he look like now? What did he have before? What does he have now? Was there any outward signs of his physical immortality that we could see? Did they know they lost it? Does that explain this head-to-toe covering of fig leaves that they put on? Because the original covering is now gone. There's a physical transformation and physical responses to it. Now, we're going to retrace. We're going to revisit the reproductive process as opposed to the... I'm sorry, let me say this better. We're going to, we're going to go back and, and look at the sexual reproduction process as opposed to the asexual reproduction process. Back to eighth grade biology. First, in sexual reproduction... The DNA of the offspring differs from the parents because the, each offspring receives half of its DNA from the DNA of each parent. Everybody understand that? Hope you do. Let me say it again. In sexual reproduction versus asexual reproduction. In sexual reproduction, the, if you want to think children, fine. But it's all sexual reproducing animals. In sexual reproduction, the offspring differs from the parents because the offspring gets half of the DNA from the father, half of the DNA from the mother. The DNA received by the offspring uh, then is not an exact copy. It's a mixture. Whereas in asexual reproduction, the DNA is copied faithfully so that the offspring are all essentially identical to the parent and to each other. Does that make sense? The mixture versus the copy. So far, so good, I hope. I know, eighth grade's been tough for all of us. I didn't listen there. 
I don't expect you to listen now. But it's very important. I need the bus to be full, all the seats taken. If anybody is, you know, elbow the guy next to you. Okay. There will be a test on Friday. For sexual reproduction, then, a completely new individual is formed because I'm combining the cells from each parent. Does that make sense? Now the important part. If two cells from each parent simply combined, in other words, cell from parent A, cell from parent B, they combined, okay, the resulting cell that came out of that would have twice the number of chromosomes and would die. So, you follow that. Run out of room, I'll make a box. How many chromosomes do you have? Something we're going to have to learn. 46 is correct. He would know, wouldn't he? And there's 22 pairs, and then there's the 23rd pair. Okay, we'll get into that in a minute. The 23rd is the sexual reproductive pair. If two cells from each parent simply combined... Each cell has 23 or 46 chromosomes, 23 pairs. If they combined, I'd have twice the number of chromosomes, and the result would be the cell would die. So, this is one of these big, oh no, how could God solve this? Why didn't God know this? Blah, blah. And remember, we think low. We're low thinkers. That's the song. Think low, sweet apricot, right? Thanks for laughing. By pure luck and magic and chance and vast amounts of time, and you know that's not true, right? This is the design. God figured out, duh, because he's omniscient, he has all the power, duh. He's outside of time, duh. How many chromosomes we're going to need and what happens in sexual reproduction? It just so happens that each parent produces a gamete. You ought to know that word. What do you suppose a gamete is? It's a cell that has half of the complement of chromosomes in it. So that when it combines with the gamete from the other parents, we happen to have the right amount of chromosomes. How lucky is this God person? The egg is the female gamete, and the sperm is the male gamete. Next week, I'll have more diagrams for you visually necessary. I'll have handouts eventually. With only half of the full complement of chromosomes, gametes cannot produce more cells. They only got half the chromosomes. They got to find another gamete. Again, the egg of the female gamete the egg is the female gamete and the sperm is the male gamete. And they have to find each other. And once they combine, the DNA can now replicate to form new cells by cell division. And cell division will give rise to a new person and body. That's how it works. Notice how I said that very carefully. A new person. Bill the cow had a wonderful thing the other day he was here. Or how much can you cut off of your body? It's essentially... Um, the Williams and uh, Swinburne thought experiment. How much can you cut off of your body and still be you? Obviously, you can cut off a finger, you're still you. You cut off an arm, you're still you. You lose your heart, get a different heart, you're still you. So when the gametes combine, the DNA can now replicate to form new cells. I have cell division and I give rise to a new person and a new body, if you will wish to call it new. So next week we're going to study Henrietta Lacks, who died 1951. Called the the Hela or the Hela or the H-E-L-A. I hear it pronounced all kinds of different ways. The cell line, the Hela or the uh, Henrietta Lacks cell line. She died in 1951 of cancer. What do they still have? They still got her cancer. They've kept it. Think sourdough pancakes. That helps you. Yeah. 
We have to study her. Because that's going to get us back to the continuity of germ cells or the continuity of germ plasm. Same thing. And we shall study cell division in deoxyribose nucleic acid, right? DNA. And chromosome pairs, the 23rd pair for sure. The basic mechanics of reproduction. The abandoned concept of inheritance of acquired characteristics, which, by the way, is why Pope Pius IX made his mistake. Because he did not know about the continuity of germplasm. He thought the Darwinian position that has now been totally abandoned as nonsense, inherited characteristics, inheritance of acquired characteristics, was correct. He did not know about the law of limitations in variation of progeny. And he made a mistake. And that mistake means that he had no idea what happened at the virgin birth. So now he had no idea what happened at the crucifixion. And now he had no idea what happened at the death of God or the resurrection of God or anything. Because he believed something that was totally wrong and he wrote it into a doctrine and destroyed a church. And all of that we're going to study next week to answer two theological questions. Did the germ cells of Eve escape the poison? I'm going to tell you they did. What biological mechanism enables the death generator or the mortogenic factor to be passed down from each generation through the male gamete? Those two questions, once answered, do something to all of you who listen and come and learn it. What did they do to you? They transform you. Once you can answer those questions, you're no longer somebody. You no longer love the simple. This is not simple. The consequences of understanding solves this whole thing. You will know about the crucifixion. And then you will know about what happened here at the curse. All you got left is the flood. What you will do by understanding sexual reproduction and gametes is that you will know the crucifixion, what really happened there, how true it is. You will know that the Genesis record with regard to Adam and Eve, absolutely, perfectly true, literally true. How powerful have you become? So I'm trying to slowly end everyone's love of the simple. Most will resist, as I've found out in life. Most will resist. I will hope that you won't. What will it do ultimately to you? You understand this. What will happen? Your fear goes down. Your peace goes up. You figure out who he is, what he's doing, how he did it, why. Fear goes down. Peace goes up. We're about to watch the destruction of the worldwide monetary system. It's going to be amazing. No generation has ever seen it before. Bill's generation saw World War II. My dad saw World War I and World War II. No generation had ever seen World War in the history of man. No generation had ever seen the rebirth of the nation of Israel, 1949. No generation has ever seen the collapse of the entire world's monetary system, as predicted where? We get to see it. I think you're going to see it Thursday. I mean, it's getting crazy out there. It really is. Buy canned food. Tuna fish and oil. Last till the last five years or better. I mean, it's crazy. If that happens, then you're going to need all the peace you can get. I was telling Jonas before the thing, 
One of the primary reasons I believe God is going to refocus on the nation of Israel is going to bring them back. He loves His people, the Jews. He's the God of the Jews. He, is, he took on Jewish humanity. Christ is a, is, a, is a Jewish man with God inside of Him. It's an extraordinary mystery. He loves His people. He's going to get them back. He's not going to have us around to do it. We'll get in the way. One of the reasons we'll get in the way is because we will be laughing at this. We will have so much understanding. We'll know this is funny. I would laugh. I've come to kill you. (laughs) You guys have any idea what's going to happen here? You're going to kill what? The body? You can't. I have immortality. We'll have popcorn and diet Coke and watch cable TV. It'll be hysterical. That's the kind of peace you get when you begin to understand what he said, why he said it, what he did, why he did it, and who he really is. And you know what really happened at these three things. Let's rise and do this thing.